Hey, hey, good morning. So good to see you. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and go to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 is where we're going to be. And if you don't have a Bible or if you're new to the Bible, it's totally fine. I've got mine, and we'll also have the words on the screen so that you can follow along. But Luke chapter 1. Uh, well, hey, I, I want to I announce something to you. The Christmas season has officially begun. All right? So we're, we're officially in it. And what's, what's interesting about that is I actually don't need to announce that to you. We all instinctively know that we're in the Christmas season. How is that? How do we know that we're in the season officially? Well, it's not because someone gets on an intercom or uh, over a microphone and, and announces that. It's because there's one tangible piece of evidence that when this happens, you emphatically know we have entered the official Christmas season. What is it? Well, okay, so I, that's not going to work out to do that. So let me just tell you the answer. It's Christmas music. That's how you know. When you hear Christmas music, it's like, oh, we're full on in the Christmas spirit right now. So uh, here's what's interesting about Christmas music to me. We spend 11 months out of our year singing songs that are not great, uh, primarily about human strength and power and about uh, pursuing our own desires and building our own kingdoms and, and doing whatever it is that we want to do. And, and maybe it's a love song that comes over the radio or on your Spotify playlist. And it's like, here are all the ways that I can fulfill all of your desires or all the ways that you are going to meet my greatest needs and longings as a human being. And, and, and 11 months out of our year, that's the reality. And then around Thanksgiving, or if you really love to party a little bit before Thanksgiving, shh, don't tell anyone, you might play some Christmas music and all of a sudden you walk through Target and you might hear these words, he who rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. You're grabbing a, a, a cup of coffee at your coffee shop and you hear, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. How bizarre is that, that you're walking through Walmart or wherever and there's these songs, not about human strength, but about the strength and power of Jesus and about really lowering humanity and raising up Christ as King. How bizarre is that, that well, all month we have songs like this over the radio, or you might hear this uh, at your local wherever. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. It's weird to hear that in Walmart, isn't it? But you do in this season. Now, to be sure, not all of the songs that you're going to hear in this season of Christmas are going to be rich theologically and just fill your heart with beauty and awe of who God is. You might hear Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, which is one of the worst songs ever written. Let me just read you a section of it. Uh, she'd been drinking too much eggnog, and we begged her not to go, but she forgot her medication, and she staggered out into the snow. But when we found her Christmas morning at the scene of the attack, she had hoof prints on her forehead and incriminating claws marks on her back. Someone actually wrote that song. Like, can you imagine? Hey, what'd you do last night? Well, I wrote a song about my grandma getting murdered by Santa Claus. Would you like to hear that? No, I don't want to hear that song. Or you might hear uh, some Christ Christian songs that are equally as bad, like Mary, Did You Know? Um, yes, as a matter of fact, Mary did know. You know how she knew? Because just prior to this, 
an angel from heaven came and told her exactly what was gonna happen. So yes, Mary, she knew. Or uh, one that's equally as bad, little drummer boy. You know what every new parent wants you to show up with uh, to see their baby? A drum, a very loud drum. No, nobody does that, right? And, and, and not only is the concept of the song bad, but the words are pathetic and lazy. Um, Pa-rumpa-pum-pum is repeated 33 times. They say one line and then pa-rumpa-pum-pum, pa-rumpa-pum-pum, I mean, on and on and on. I won't recite it because it's that dumb. That's Christmas. You hear these songs. And here's what we're doing today. What we're doing today is we're kicking off our new series called Carols of the King. And thankfully, before all of those good and really, really bad Christmas songs were written, uh, uh, singing has always been a part of Christmas. And what we're going to see is actually at the very first Christmas in Luke 1 and in Luke chapter 2, there were four songs that were sung. The very first Christmas, it's always been a part of Christmas. And we are going to go back, not looking at cultural songs, but we're going to look at some of the first songs ever written from the very first Christmas. The, these songs come from four different people that have very, very, very different stories. You have a poor teenage girl. You have a respected but disillusioned priest. You have an old man that's getting really, really close to death. And then you have a group of angels who show up to blue-collar shepherds to sing to them. And here's what I love about this. If you, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're not really sure what you believe, you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity, I don't think you could have picked a better time to show up to church because these songs tell us about who God really is. Our cultural songs are gonna tell us about who we are as a culture, but these songs, these, these very first songs that were ever sung around the, the birth uh, and right after the birth of Jesus, they're gonna tell us if Christianity has anything to offer whatsoever. If there's any significance to it and what God is really like. Now, before we jump into the very first song that was ever sung, the first Christmas carol sung by Mary herself in Luke 1, before we jump into that, I want to just ask you the question, what is God like? What is God like? Because these songs are going to tell us what God is like, but what is he like? And, and this, might be, this might not be a question that you've spent a lot of time recently processing, or maybe you don't spend hardly ever thinking critically about this question, but it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an atheist or uh, a devoted follower of Jesus, everybody has an answer to this question of what God is like. We all have our own opinions and ideas. And so just culturally, here are some of the ones that are offered up to us. Uh, there's an American opinion of what God is like, an American version of God that's handed to us. God is, according to America, he's the big man upstairs. Uh, he's like this divine Santa Claus that uh, doesn't really have any interaction, very little interaction with our lives whatsoever. He just generally wants people to be fair and nice and good. And if we do that, then everything is going to go okay. And when we think about God, it's like th there might be a naughty and nice list out there somewhere, but it's totally irrelevant. Everybody's going to get a Christmas present at the end of the day. That's the American version of God, just this big man upstairs that doesn't really have anything to do with my life unless a crisis hits. Then there's the Oklahoma answer to that question. The Oklahoma answer is very similar to the American answer. It's just a little bit more emphasis on morality and the need to behave and the need to uh, keep the rules. And it almost has this vision of God standing behind uh, this giant scale and all your good things go on one side and all your bad things go on the other side. And like the show that's on Netflix right now, The Good Place, if you have more good deeds than bad deeds, then that's gonna tally you up to where you get to go to the good place 
when you die. That's the, the Oklahoma answer to the question. And then you have what, what I just want to call the Richard Dawkins answer to the question of what God is like. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Uh, maybe uh, some of the greatest pains in your life have come from the hands of Christians. Or maybe you've read parts of the Bible and you've got some confusions or it's created the sense of concern and doubt about the character of God. Who is he really and does he even really exist? Uh, in his book, Richard Dawkins, his book, the, the God Delusion, he says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously uh, malevolent bully. Like how, do you, how do you really feel about God, Richard? Tell us. And maybe that's what you think. Maybe, maybe not to that extreme, but you're beginning to have doubts and wonder, how could a good God allow fill in the blank? And so what is God like? Well, uh, regardless of what version uh, you adhere to or what your answer to the question is, all of us have these opinions. And what, what we get to see today in Luke chapter one is so valuable because we're not gonna get this opinion from culture or from America or from Oklahoma or from Richard Dawkins. We get to go to Mary herself the mother of Jesus, while she's literally pregnant with Jesus, and she's gonna sing a song, and the song that she sings is gonna tell us the answer to this question of what God is like. So without further ado, let's jump in. Look at Luke chapter one, verse 46. And let, let me say real quick before we read this, that what's so valuable about this passage is that there's a physician named Luke in the first century who spent years of his life uh, testing and questioning and interviewing people to gather evidence so that he could tell a friend of his how he could know what God really was like. And, and that's what we're reading in the Gospel of Luke. It's coming to give us assurance of who he really is. So look at Mary's song in Luke chapter one, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he's exalted those of humble estate. And he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What I want to do with you is I want to look at three questions and I want to answer those three questions from this passage. So here's the first question. What is God really like? This thing that we've been talking about, what is he like? Well, well, this song uh, for, for out, throughout history, the last 2,000 years, has been called by most people in the Christian tradition, the Magnificat of Mary. The Magnificat is a really interesting, weird word, but it's a Latin word that simply means to magnify. And so what's happening is Mary is actually magnifying the Lord, and she's singing the song of celebration and the song of joy. And some of the words that keep coming up over and over and over are about the power 
power of God and the strength of God and the wisdom of God. So look at this in verse 49. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. In verse 51, she says, he has shown strength with his arm. In verse 52, she, she sings, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And so she's singing about this God and the, the, the vision that we get is one of power and one of might and one of strength. Now, let me just pause here and say that that should not surprise anybody in the room, especially if you're familiar with any literature in the first century about the gods, any song of praise written to the gods in the first century. So you have songs that were written to Zeus, you have songs that were written to Athena and Apollos and all these other Greek and Roman deities, and just about everybody that would sing a song, no, in fact, everyone who would sing a song about their deity, their God, would sing about the strength of their God the power of their God, the wisdom and might of their God. No one was going around saying, I wish my God was better than he is, but he's not. And I wish she had more power, but she doesn't. Everyone was singing about these various gods and they were talking about the strength and the power and the wisdom. And so this is really not surprising that Mary starts out talking uh, about the God of the Bible, singing about him. And she's singing in a way that sounds identical to the culture around her and what they would say about their gods. But when you start to read a little bit closely and you start digging into what she's really saying, there's something that really should surprise you about what she sings. Because what she says God does with his power and with his might, no other God in the first century, no other God in the culture would ever do such a thing. Let let me show you what she says. In verse 46, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Why? for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What has this God done with his power and strength? He has cared for and looked after this teenage peasant girl in a small village who is insignificant to the world if this event did not happen to her. That's what type of God he is. Luke 1 she says, he has shown strength with his arm. What has he done with that strength? He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. And verse 52, she sings, he's brought down the mighty from their throne. So it's not just that he's strong and powerful, bringing down the mighty, but look, and he's exalted those of humble estate. And then in verse 53, she sings, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away hungry. He's sent away empty. How how interesting is this, that she's singing about the power of God. She's singing about the might and the strength of God, but what this God chooses to do with his strength and with his power and might is unlike any other God in our culture or in theirs. Instead of only loving the powerful and the wise and the strong, he actually comes for the lowest of the low, and he cares about the humble. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the word humble? When I hear that word, I kind of think of someone who uh, doesn't really like compliments and is always, you know, pushing other people up and trying to lower themselves and not make uh, life or the attention about them or on them, but really trying to elevate other people around them. 
And I think that's one definition of humility that's probably okay. But when the word humble is used, and it's used over and over and over of the types of people that God cares for, the types of people that he loves, and the types of people that he brings his power and strength to bear for, when when it uses this word humble, the Greek word is actually uh, tepinos. And what's so interesting about this word is it doesn't mean what we think it means in terms of humility. Instead of meaning someone who's making the attention about someone else, this This word humility in Greek, this word humble, it means someone who is at the lowest of the low, someone who is at the bottom of the rung, someone that culture overlooks, people overlook. We're talking about someone that there's nothing noteworthy about them. They have nothing in themselves to hope in, and so they depend on God because they're totally helpless without him. And Mary is singing a song of celebration, saying, our God is so strong and he uses his strength to care for and love the lowly. Do you wanna know what Christmas is all about? It's not about God coming for the powerful. It's not about God using his might to draw the righteous and the people that had their lives well put together to himself. Christmas is all about God's passionate desire to be close to the most vulnerable, the most poor, the most broken, the most addicted people in the world. Those are the types of people that God loves. So what is God like? He's not like this God that Richard Dawkins paints. He's not like the God that America paints where he's this distant, far-off deity. He he might be a bully. No, this is a God, though though he is all-powerful and though he is almighty, he uses his power and his strength to care for those of us who are at the weakest and the most vulnerable. That is breathtaking. This is the story of Christmas. He comes for the sinful. Now, this isn't just the story of Christmas. This is really the story of the whole Bible. If you haven't really read this much or don't know what this is about, this is a story about Jesus. But it's not just a story about Jesus. It's a story about Jesus loving the worst of the worst of the worst. And and if you don't believe me, look at what Mary says at the very end of her song in verse 54. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel, remember that, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, remember that, and to his offspring forever. See, we hear those words, Israel and Abraham, and we think, well, they must be amazing. Like the people of God, that's a pretty profound title. Israel must have been awesome. Abraham, he's like the father of the Jewish faith and and also in many ways the father of the Christian faith. He must be just incredible. But when you carefully read the story, what you're going to realize is the story of the people of God is not a great story. It's not a story of up and to the right. Do you know what I mean by that? It's not a story of their successes and them keeping the rules and them being moral. It starts with Abraham. And Abraham, when God meets him, is actually a pagan man living in the heart of Babylon, the city that was opposed to everything that God stood for. He was living in this city of Babylon and he was worshiping the gods of Babylon. He was worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. And God shows up to that pagan man And he says, I love you, and I'm choosing you, and I want to bless you. Now, when we hear that word bless you, it's like, oh, did you sneeze? Or it's like, oh, bless his heart, which is like uh, an older Christian uh, uh, throwing shade on someone else, right? Uh, we, We don't have a good idea of what that word bless means. 
But the biblical vision of blessing someone is to speak the favor and intentions of God over that person's life. It's when you come to them and you say, here's who God wants you to be and, and, and he's giving you this gift and he's calling you to something. And what God is doing is he's blessing Abraham. He's, he's giving his full favor and his heart to Abraham, to a pagan guy. And then you fast forward in the story and you read about uh, Moses. What did Moses do? Well, when God chose Moses, he was a murderer. He'd killed someone, and yet God decided to call Moses to himself and to use him for his purposes. Uh, or maybe King David. He was a, a big deal in the Old Testament. King David, you gotta go like, well, he was pretty great, right? He was a man after God's own heart. But King David, he actually committed adultery. He got the woman pregnant, and then he orchestrated the murder of her husband to, over, to cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. And that man, her husband, was one of his close friends and, and, and in the military that he was supposed to be leading into battle. I mean, how gross and conniving do you have to be to cover up getting a girl pregnant and then try to have the, the husband of her murdered? <coughs> and this is what uh, uh, the types of people that God is drawn to, these are the types of people that he loves. King David is called a man after God's own heart. Or then you get to the New Testament and you read about Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was so filled with darkness, it says that she had seven demons living inside of her and that's exactly the type of person that Jesus is drawn to. And then, and then the woman at the well, what about her? Well, the woman at the well, well her story is so fascinating because she had five failed marriages and she was currently living with her boyfriend that she wasn't married to, sleeping with her boyfriend and Jesus has nothing but mercy and compassion and love to give to her. And then you get to prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And these are the types of people that Jesus just can't help to eat with. He can't help to be around. He can't help to love. And then you get to the apostle Paul. He was a terrorist, literally trying to put to death the church. And yet this is the type of person that God is drawn to, someone that is broken from the inside out, someone that has nothing good to offer. Here's why Mary is singing, not because the God of the Bible is a God that uses his power and strength and says, all right, now you live up to my expectations and demands, and if you can't do that, that I don't want anything to do with you. But the God of the Bible is so unbelievable in his power and strength that he actually uses that to pursue the lowest of the low. And so I just want to tell you, if you are here today and you're addicted and you can't get away out and, and your marriage is a train wreck or, or your life is a total disaster and you don't even know how you got to where you are and everything is falling apart around you, you are exactly the types of, types of people that God has loved throughout the last 2,000 years and will continue to love. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It's about what God has done, not for the strong, not for the righteous, but for the broken and for the sinful and for the poor. See, the gospel isn't, if you're good, you can come in, and if you're bad, you've gotta stay out. The gospel is, if you're bad, I'm inviting you to come in. And if you think you're good, then you don't even realize that you need a savior and you're gonna get scattered. That's the gospel. That's the message of Christmas. This is why we sing because this is unbelievable news and no other God in, in this culture would have ever sounded like this. So what is God like? Well, he's powerful and strong, but he uses his power and might to love the lowest of the low. Now, uh, if that's true, if that really is true, that God is like this, then here's the second question I wanna look at with you. What does God want? What does he want 
from us. I mean, he loves the, the sinful, he loves the lowly, he loves the, the ones that are broken and hopeless. But what does he want from us? Does that just automatically enter our lives and, and because Jesus died on a cross and he rose again from the dead, now automatically everybody's okay in the world? No, God actually does want something from us. And, and the thing that he wants from you and the thing that he wants from me is the exact same thing that he wanted from Mary. He wants to come in and live with you and dwell with you and to bring you in a part of his redemptive story. Now, now let me explain something about this that I think is fascinating uh, before we unpack this point. Martin Luther talking about this passage, Martin Luther said that there are actually three miracles surrounding the birth of Jesus. So think about this, three different miracles. Here's the first one. The first is God becoming a man. So that's kind of a big deal. Like the uncreated creator of the universe became an embryo passed through the birth canal and was born as a human baby. That's a miracle, God becoming a man. The second miracle surrounding the birth of Jesus is a virgin giving birth. If you know anything about biology or sexuality, then you know like that's not supposed to happen. Virgins aren't supposed to give birth and yet it happened with Mary. And then here's the third miracle and this might take you by surprise, but I think it's fascinating. Luther says the third miracle is that Mary actually believed and obeyed when the angel came and told her that she was gonna have the Messiah. She actually believed and obeyed. Now, I think the reason why that's not shocking to us that, oh, well, of course Mary would believe and obey. An angel appeared to her and said, you're gonna have the Messiah, the, the king who's gonna rule over the world. But here's what's fascinating. I want you to keep in mind what Mary had on the line for her to actually be willing and say, yes, that's okay, I'm, I wanna do this. I wanna give birth to, to the Messiah. She had so much on the line. Let me just remind you of a few of those things. She was engaged to a man named Joseph to be married. So this was like her expectation and hope. She was gonna get married. She was gonna have a, a partner in life. And yet she knew that like by saying yes to this, by saying, okay, I'm your servant, you can go ahead and do this and I wanna be a part of this redemptive story. What she was in effect saying no to was her relationship with Joseph. Can you imagine for just a minute Mary trying to go to Joseph and have that conversation? Hey, I know what this looks like and, and, and I know it's hard to, to understand, but I really did not do this. Um, this was actually the Holy Spirit that got me pregnant and I really hope you believe me. Right? How does that conversation go? Well, it, it doesn't go well, and it's going to end with Joseph saying, I can't do this. I can't, you've been, you've been cheating on me, right? So she had that on the line. In addition to that, in this culture, she had at least the possibility of being stoned for her sexual unfaithfulness, right? She had the possibility of being stoned for sexual unfaithfulness. So by saying yes to Gabriel, saying you are going to uh, give birth to the Messiah, and by her being a willing participant in this redemption story, she's putting her life on the line. In addition to that, uh, if she was spared, then she's going to have to be a single mom for the rest of her life. She's already a teenager. Now she's got to raise this baby on her own all by herself. And let's remember that Mary's already poor. We know that from the story. She's already the poorest of the poor. Uh, we see later her and Joseph offering two pigeons in the temple, which if you look back in the Old Testament, was the offering for those who didn't have any money. It was like the poorest of the poor could bring two pigeons to the temple. And so here she is at the bottom of the economical uh, barrel. And now, not only is she not go going to have a husband, but she's gotta figure out how to survive economically in a culture that did not value single moms. And then on top of that, she would have brought shame not only on herself, 
in an honor-shame culture that's hard for us to understand, she would have brought shame on herself, she would have brought shame on her family, and she would have brought shame on her community. And yet, all of this, going through Mary's mind, all of this, look at her response in Luke 138. Let me read it to you. Gabriel had just announced this news to her, and here's what she says. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You see, Mary was, was getting to have God come near to her. She was getting invited into the redemptive story that God was telling, but that was gonna be really, really costly. And it was actually gonna have a profound impact on her life. It was gonna change her from the inside out. She could not go about her life as normal from this point forward. It's grace upon grace that Mary was, was seen to be blessed in this way, and yet this was disruptive grace that changed her whole life. And here's the point in me saying that. When, when we ask the question, what is God like and what does he want from us? What I want you to realize is that yes, he loves the lowest, lowest of the low. He loves those who are at the bottom. He loves those that are addicted. But what he wants to do with you is the same thing he wanted to do with Mary. Not the uh, baby Jesus growing inside of you part, thanks be to God. But what he wants to do is just like he did with Mary, he wants to come close to you. He wants to, to live and dwell inside of you. And he wants to invite you into his redemptive story. And if you say yes to that, you're gonna experience the grace of God. You're gonna experience the blessing of God. And yet it's disruptive grace. And it's gonna change you from the inside out. And you can't go about life as normal. It's gonna change you. Like your, your view of money starts to shift and change. Your view of sexuality starts to change. Your view of marriage and singleness and vocation and work and relationships, all of that start to change and everything comes underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's grace upon grace, but this grace will disrupt your life. It will change you. Just like with Mary, she could never be the same after this encounter with God. God wants to draw near to you, but you'll never be the same if you say yes. You'll never be the same if you come to him. He will change you. But here's his invitation. Here's what he wants you to say back. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The same thing Mary said is what he wants you to say. Now here's the last thing. So what, what is God like? Well, he, he's strong and powerful, but he uses his power uh, not to love the righteous and the powerful. He uses his power to love the needy and the sinful. What does he want? Well, he wants the same thing he wanted with Mary. He wants to live in you. He wants to dwell in you. He wants to come close to you and bring you into his redemptive story, but it's gonna change your life. And then here's the last question. How do, how do we sing? In other words, how do we get to the place where we're not just feeling the weight of that disruptive grace in our life and the difficulty of following Jesus, but how do we get to the place where we can actually sing about what God is doing and who he is and what he's like and what he's done for us? How do we sing? Well, this is a song that you and I are meant to sing together. Here's what I want you to realize about this story, that when Gabriel comes to Mary and says, here's what's gonna happen to you, her first response is not to break out in singing. Her first response is actually, it's beautiful and it's filled with faith, but you can almost hear the somber tone of Mary. I am the servant of the Lord. Uh, do with me as you wish. 
It's difficult, it's hard, right? Some of you are in that place right now where following Jesus is not easy and it's difficult and it's painful and it's hard and he's asking you to do things and you're like, I don't really feel like singing about this. I don't really feel like celebrating about this. And here's what's so bizarre. Mary wasn't able to sing until she visited her cousin Elizabeth. And there was something that happened in that interaction with Elizabeth that set Mary loose and she goes from being just faithful and obedient over here to faithful and filled with joy to where she breaks out in song. What was it that happened? Well, look at the story in verse 39. This is right before she breaks out in that song. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This was her cousin. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. So there's already joy happening And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, look at this, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, here's what happens in this interaction. Elizabeth, instead of making the story about her, as Mary approaches with Jesus in her womb, Elizabeth breaks out in celebration and she begins to affirm her sister, her cousin Mary, like crazy. She makes it all about her and it's gospel affirmation left and right. Mary probably came in fearful and nervous and like, oh my goodness, how is Joseph gonna respond and what does this mean for my life and what are people in my community gonna think and and all these fears that you would have, not just as a mom, but a mom carrying the Messiah. She was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. She's got all these fears and all these things going through her, and yet she walks in and Elizabeth is affirming her in the gospel. And there's something that happens there as she's being affirmed, and and, and Elizabeth is reminding her of the truth and saying, no, you really are blessed among women, that it's like Mary is now finally able to believe the truth of that, and that's when she starts to sing. Do you ever get to the place where no matter what you know in your head, you just feel like God wants nothing to do with you? Do you ever get to the place where life is so painful and difficult and and no matter what truth is floating around somewhere in your brain, it's like you just don't feel the weight of it at all and singing feels like the last thing that you could do? You're like, yeah, yeah, I know God is strong. Even in the sermon, I know God is strong. I know he's powerful. I know he helps the the lowly. I know he helps the ones that, that don't have hope, but that's probably everyone else except for me. And even in this moment, it's like hard for you to gospel yourself and and believe the truth. And sometimes, do you know what you need to hear more than anything else? Not your own inner critic, not your own inner voice, not the lie and the accusations of the enemy. Sometimes what you need to hear most is a brother or a sister that won't make the story all about them, but they're gonna look you in the eyes. They're gonna grab you by the shoulders and they're gonna say, you have been blessed by Jesus. He came for you when you were lowly. He's lavished you with mercy and love. He's forgiven you of your sins. He's given you a new identity and a new name. And there's something about that interaction with another person that you get to experience the heart of God in a way that you just can't in your own head by yourself in isolation. That's why Mary was able to sing. This is a song that we are meant to sing together. 
You can't just believe this on your own. In fact, some of you are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. And I just wanna say that unless you move out of isolation and into community, even as someone who's struggling and wrestling with the claims of Christianity, it's gonna be very, very, very tough for you to fully understand who God is and what he wants to do in your life. You are meant to experience his love, not in isolation, but in community. Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his uh, book, Life Together, he says these words, and this resonates with me. He says, God has willed that we should seek uh, and find his living word in the witness of a brother or a sister in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. Anybody uncertain and discouraged this morning? You don't need the voice of an angel. You need the voice of a brother or a sister. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belaying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. That's how Mary was able to sing. She comes in to Elizabeth's house with fear and trembling and she's faithful and she's obedient, but she's not breaking out in song yet. And then something happens as as Elizabeth affirms her in the truth and reminds her of the gospel that that Mary breaks out in the song and suddenly the truth of who God really is starts to land heavy in her heart. Some of you, can I just ask you to stop listening to the voice in your head for just a minute? If you are broken and if you are sinful and if your life is falling apart and if you feel like you are without hope entirely, hear me tell you please that you are exactly the type of person that God wants to love. That's why we have Christmas. He left heaven to come for you because he cared about the lowly. He cared about the weak, the addicted, the ones without hope. This is a song that we are meant to sing together. So with all of that, I want to just bring it to a close. What is God like? He's so powerful and he's so mighty. But the story of the gospel is that he used, he who is powerful became poor for us. And he who is mighty became weak. He became so weak that he was stripped naked on a cross. And on that cross, he absorbed the full weight of our sin and our judgment. Jesus, the one who held the universe together, his body was broken for you. The one that created the the concept of blood in your body, bloodstream on the cross, his blood was poured out and shed for you. Why? So that you could be forgiven. This is not a story uh, about God inviting the righteous to himself. This is not a story about God inviting the rich and the powerful to himself. This is not a story about God inviting the moral to himself. If that's you and you don't feel your need for God, you should be a little bit nervous because he actually scatters the proud. This is a story where he came for the lowly. Do you feel lowly today? This is for you, the body of Jesus. Do you feel broken today and sinful today? This is for you, it's the blood of Jesus. Do you feel without hope? He came so that you could have hope. This is the truth of the gospel. So with that, would you stand? And I wanna invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, come grab this bread, grab this wine, and celebrate the truth of this story today.